Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Cover Story, a podcast by New Books Network, where we talk about long-form journalism. Today, we're talking with a New York veteran journalist, David Friedlander, who covers New York politics for New York Mag, but also covers arts for Daily Beast, or at least he used to. He published long pieces in various publications such as Vanity Fair, Politico. Moreover, in March of this year, he published um, his first book uh, titled The AOC Generation, How Millennials Are Seizing Power and Rewriting the Rules of American Politics. Welcome, David. How are you? I'm terrific. Great to be here. So today we will talk, of course, about the book, but uh, mostly about your recent pieces in the New York Mag and very recently uh, on the Andrew Cuomo drama, uh, on the surprises of the New York mayoral race, uh, on Eric Adams, on AOC and Bill de Blasio, because you built several portraits of all those uh, all those people over the years. Um, um, did I miss something in your biography or could you please tell uh, us a bit about your journey, how you uh, get to where you are right now? No, I mean, I think you, you, kind, of, you kind of hit the, um, the, the major points. Um, yeah, I went to um, Columbia uh, Graduate School of Journalism, which is where we met, actually, uh, when I came back um, years later to, to co-teach a class there. Um, and, you know, then just sort of stuck around in New York and, and gradually kind of, you know, bounced around with various places, um, you know, eventually uh, landing at the New York Observer and then to the Daily Beast um, and more recently contributing to mostly to New York Magazine and Politico Magazine uh, and occasionally um, uh, Vanity Fair and, you know, sort of wherever else uh, will have me kind of thing. Okay, so you are not a New Yorker. Where are you from, and uh, what's your background? No, I, I, um, I'm not a New Yorker. I, I it's a sort of adopted hometown uh, for me. I guess it is is for for many people. Um, I came here to go to uh, graduate school to go to Columbia Journalism School. Yeah, I kind of always wanted to be um, a journalist, and and I'm very grateful to Columbia for sort of helping me achieve that. Um, but I grew up in, in, in Baltimore, uh, Maryland, um, which is, I don't know, maybe 300 or so miles south of here. Um, and, you know, lived in Philadelphia for college, uh, in sort of California, the Bay Area, soon after college. Um, but I've, I've been in New York for, um, you know, um, just uh, about 16 years now. Um, so it sort of it sort of feels like home. Um, and um, raising my family here and all that kind of thing. Uh, yes. Yeah, so when did you get uh, to start interested in New York politics? Just, you know, as a citizen, because as a resident, because you moved to New York and you started to get involved or, or uh, was it uh, your beat from the very beginning? You know, I, I mean, I, I, that's a great question. I mean, I really always sort of found New York especially sort of upon arriving here to be just this kind of like endlessly fascinating place um, that, you know, um, just had like a universe inside of it. Um, And really like no other place, at least in America that I could kind of imagine. It just seemed like a place you could never finish with uh, exploring. and in part because it was like always kind of changing. I mean, there are always 
new people arriving, um, you know, new buildings going up, it just, it just endlessly sort of fascinating. Um, and I also sort of loved politics. I, I don't know if at the time when I started out, I sort of loved New York politics or certainly even um, knew much about it, but I love New York and I love politics and those sort of two things kind of combined um, to, to, to get here. Um, and I ended up, I actually ended up taking a class when I first arrived at Columbia with the, with the uh, now sadly late legendary journalist, Wayne Barrett, who was a investigative local political reporter for the, for the village voice. Um, and, um, and so kind of fell into it that way. Um, really, I think wanted to be, uh, an arts and culture journalist, um, and still, still do some of that. Um, I'm actually kind of writing a feature about a theatrical production here in New York that I saw over the weekend. Um, I've noticed there is a lot of theater in, in your writing. I'm... Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's sort of like, that's kind of like one of the unique things about New York. I mean, it's not as if any, or many other towns like really have a kind of a vibrant theater scene, like in the way that New York does. I mean, it's just a place, this place always just seems so full of distraction and amusement and delight all the time. And you want to sort of, as a person, throw yourself into it. And maybe even as a journalist, what, fun about being a journalist is to sort of throw yourself into all these, you know, situations that, that you wouldn't explore otherwise. Um, uh, but, you know, I think, I mean, everybody, as, as you well know, I mean, it all kind of depends on the sort of micro moment in a way when you sort of enter the field, I think, um, which sort of sets you on a different trajectory. And, you know, when I finished at Columbia, uh, many moons ago, it was like there were, it was a really low moment for the journalism industry, not, not just because of all the sort of like financial stuff happening. Um, uh, that's always kind of happening where everything is always running out of money and going bankrupt or whatever, but like also like the, the sort of like the internet hadn't really arrived in a funny way when, when I started my career as a journalist. And so when we were all, at graduate school, there were like, there were just no jobs. I mean, the only jobs were kind of in these, like, you know, dying newspaper chains, you know, in, in far flung cities. Um, all of which is to say there always was an appetite for, I think, for politics. Um, it's always something that, you know, readers were interested in and editors were interested in. And so I kind of sort of fell into it that way. Um, my, my first job after graduate school was at a was at a small paper in in new york um called uh am new york which uh they used to sort of hand out free on the subway um and my editors there knowing my interests sort of had me write you know work out of the press office at, at city hall here and then it was just kind of you know one thing after another kind of taking me um up to uh, up to today wow so you probably uh, heard and follow Andrew Cuomo for quite a while now, right? Sure. Yeah. I, mean, I, I covered his first campaign, um, for governor, you know, back in, uh, back in, back in 2010, covered him when he was the attorney general, uh, you know, before that. So, yeah. So if back then you uh, got the information that you have, um, you know, today, uh, with him resigning and all that stuff, um, how to phrase it uh are you surprised uh are you surprised with this whole story 
what can you t- <laughs> what can you tell us what was re- your reaction when you when you heard that he resigned what do you think broke him um yeah you know i um i mean I, it's like you never know what goes on behind closed doors so obviously like i'd have to say you mean we all would have to be surprised like a little bit about 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 all that um You know, I think that Andrew Cuomo is this kind of interesting figure in a funny way where, you know, he's he's like the most powerful person in New York and he has ruled New York with this iron fist um, where he's like constantly strategizing and he's constantly outmaneuvering people and he's kind of constantly um, getting his way. And. You know, and he is, he's like really powerful. People are afraid of him. No one likes him, but they put up with him anyway. And, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a psychologist, but, you know, if Andrew Cuomo, his father was also the three-term governor of New York and a revered figure in Democratic Party politics in the state, Mario Cuomo. And you have to sort of think for Andrew Cuomo that there's a part of him that knows that if he had the last name of, say, Friedlander, he would not be the most powerful person in New York. And so he kind of has to, you almost get the sense that he has to like prove his toughness, prove his power and prove his worth to people all the time. For his own sort of like insecurity, even though he's this like swaggering, powerful figure. Um, you know, it's, it's like a kind of bizarre way to be. I mean, most people don't feel the need to really do that. Um, but you just wonder if they're like, he has these lingering doubts about how he got to where he is and he can never kind of get around that his last name is Cuomo. Um, and, and I think that one thing that really didn't surprise me, um, and when I first heard of all these allegations, you know, he really likes, I think, unsettling people and it's sort of his way of, you know, proving his dominance over them or something by like making them feel uncomfortable or, or, or making, making it clear that he is aware of their vulnerabilities. Um, and so when I first heard all this happen, that was my, um, that was my first, my, my first reaction, you know, the stuff about him talking in this really gross and inappropriate way to um, a, a staffer who was 40 years younger than he was, 35 years younger than he was, um, about her sex life, a sort of sexual assault that had happened in college, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, she says, well, you know, he was coming on to me. He says he wasn't. Um, who knows? But I think he was certainly trying to unsettle her. And I think he sort of, like, likes unsettling people. Mm-hmm. Um. What did you think about him as a politician early on when you were covering him early on? Um, yeah, like uh, job-wise, was he always this uh, this uh, person that people kind of talked stories about and whispered about? Or, uh, oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, he was always someone who, I mean, he, he had a, I don't know if he had a, like, checkered past. I mean, but but he was known as someone who who was a sort of man on the town. He had this like really um, public and painful divorce with um, Robert Kennedy's daughter. 
Um, you know, he would always kind of have these relationships. I mean, he just, he was just one of these guys that, I don't know. I mean, he sort of exuded this creepiness in, in, in a way. Um, but you know, when he came in to office, I mean, I think it's, it's worth like remembering that the, um, you know, you know, the previous elected governor, Elliot Spitzer had been this guy who, um, you know, called himself a steamroller and he was going to like remake the ways of the state capital in Albany and, and steamroll over everybody. Um, and everyone hated him. He wasn't able to do that. He ended up, you know, um, there was just sort of chaos and dysfunction and, and he ended up resigning in a um, prostitution scandal. His replacement, his lieutenant governor, was even more chaotic and more dysfunctional. And, and there was, you know, not quite as broke a sex scandal, but other sex scandals happening. <laughs> and so Andrew Cuomo was really came in as someone who would sort of calm the waters of Albany, who like understood um, that this is how this this town works, this is how the legislature works. I, I get it and I got it kind of thing. Um, and he was supposed to be the kind of person who like knew how to maneuver the levers of power. Um, and I think like, you know, he probably did do that. Um, uh but obviously, you know, that came with a cost. Yeah. So you wrote a couple of pieces when, we, when, when one follows your, uh, you know, uh, your pieces uh, on your MAG website. Uh, there are a couple of titles kind of, uh, how is it possible that he's not quitting? And finally, you know, he, uh, he's resigning, right? Uh, what do you think... Uh, um, caused that? Uh, what made him make this decision? Could you explain this moment a bit? Yeah, sure. I, you know, I mean, he's like, he's just this sort of consummate sort of political brawler who's kind of at his best when he feels like he's boxed in. Um, if I, you know, sort of brief aside, I remember there was a time a couple of years ago, where there was a sort of big ceremonial state of the state address. It's kind of the equivalent of the sort of state of the union in Washington, where, you know, the um, the governor stands before both houses of the legislature, makes a big speech about his initiatives for the year, what they've accomplished, what they've hoped to accomplish. And a bunch of lawmakers had decided, I forget the reason why, maybe they had to do with pay raises or something like that, that they were going to boycott the speech. Uh, they were going to not show up for the governor's speech. And so what he did was he said, well, okay. Well, then we're not going to have a state of the state speech then. Instead, we're going to do many state of the state speeches around the state. And he took them to the districts of the lawmakers who were boycotting him. So he's he's sort of always, when you think he's boxed in, he kind of wiggles out of it and ends up boxing his opponents in. And so then the opponents would either have to, the lawmakers who were boycotting would either, you know, grudgingly show up or else sort of their absence would, would, would be noted in this big event. Um, in their district. Um, and so when he was sort of in all this, you know, when it seemed as if his sort of world was coming apart here because there was a attorney general report accusing him of multiple instances of sexual harassment, retaliation, uh, and that kind of thing. Um, and the state assembly was moving to impeach him. I mean, I think his instinct was to sort of figure out a way out of it and see if he couldn't reverse what looked inevitable. Um, but in the end, you know, the inevitable, Inevitable just sort of was inevitable, and he, and he there wasn't a way out of it, um, and he was almost certainly going to be impeached ha had he not resigned. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
And I was also wondering, what does it mean for the future of politics and the Me Too uh, movement in New York City? Because that's a, such a, I guess when you compare it with uh, Al Franken uh, thing, uh, it's just weird that certain people are uh, getting away with so much and certain people are uh, giving up after being accused of relatively little. I was just wondering... Um, Uh, what do you think will be the future of that type of uh, cases and that type of situation in New York politics in recent in the next years? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I look. I think that like slowly but fortunately, social mores are changing around a lot of this stuff, um, and and that's really important, and it is like entirely to the better. Um, And that it's going to be kind of like messy and sloppy until we get there. And this notion that you can kind of like line up, you know, this, this offense is worthy of resignation and this offense is not. And those always have to match up. It's just never, I just don't think that's actually quite going to happen. You know, um, I mean, I think that they were the Cuomo people were like looking at these other instances and saying, well, you know, I, is it, you know, is, um, is this as bad as what, you know, Bill Clinton did who had this relationship with an intern in his office? Uh, you know, I didn't do anything like that. And so why, why does he get to serve out his term and I don't kind of thing, but it just, it just doesn't, you know, it just doesn't work that way. I mean, um, you know, Al Franken, of course, like they were just, I think like it was, if I recall, they were like, sort of creepy pictures and it was part of a, a, you know, comedy act kind of thing. But also like that was in the context of uh, Democrats fighting for a contested Senate uh, race in Alabama and really wanting to keep the spotlight on some of Donald Trump's misdeeds. And so they just need to get rid of Al Franken to, to sort of sh show that, you know, wh where they stood. And so I just think that sort of political context you know, will always matter in all this, in this instance. I mean, nobody really had any affection for, 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 um, for Andrew Cuomo in Albany. And he lost the support of, you know, the legislatures. And when you lose the support of the legislatures, you, you anything can be impeachable. Um, and, you know, had he sort of made uh, a, a, a more of an effort to be less confrontational towards them, maybe he could have survived this. But he didn't. And so, you know, here we are. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the future. Uh, there is a possibility that New York will have its uh, first uh, female governor, right? <laughs> Can we talk a bit about... I mean, it's, a, it's a certainty. I, th I mean, unless something happens over the next 12 days, she's, she's due to be sworn in. You know, she is the constitutional successor to, to Andrew Cuomo, uh, Kathy Hochul. Yeah. Mm hmm. Uh, what will that mean for uh, uh, for New York as a state, uh, based on what you know about this person? Yeah. Well, Kathy Hochul is a, um, a sort of longtime politician from uh, Western New York, um, which is a place that sort of New York City-based reporters like me don't get to that often. It's kind of off, off the beaten track, even though our second largest city, Buffalo, um, is there. Um, 
And uh, you know, longtime politician, Erie County clerk, I think, uh, for many years, was a one-term member of Congress uh, from a very conservative district um, before she was plucked to be um, Cuomo's uh, lieutenant governor. Um, she is not well-known um, by most of the sort of political establishment in the state. She was not very close to Andrew Cuomo. They hadn't spoken in, in six months before he told her he was um, resigning. Um, so I think we don't really know what kind of, um, uh, you know, what, what, what kind of, of governor she'll be. Um, it's it's a, certainly a new role for her. Um, she's, she's a little bit older. I don't know exactly how old uh, now that I say that. Um, but I think older than Andrew Cuomo um, to sort of be taking on uh, this job, um, you know, has never done anything like it in its magnitude or complexity. She certainly... Um, a relative moderate for a for a for a very left leaning state, um, and I think that'll that'll happen. That'll have to be sort of worked out, um, you know. Uh, but I mean, I think all, all that said, um, you know, I think though she comes, she'll probably come into office with like a lot of goodwill uh, around her, and, and you know, folks wanting her to succeed, and she'll be she'll be so different from. Um, from Andrew Cuomo, that I think she'll be given a sort of a lot of runway. Um, but I think, we'll, you know, we'll just have to see. I mean, it, you know, it, it, unless you have a real popular and solid base of support among communities of color in the sort of downstate region, which is to say New York City and its suburbs, it's just really tough to win statewide. Um, and so I think you'll have to really work t- towards that. Mm-hmm. Moving on to the uh, New York City mayoral race, uh, uh, you describe the uh, this race as an experiment um, uh, and looking searching for answer to a question: What kind of city New York is? Is it a progressive AOC, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez city, or is it a, a Andrew Young city where roots do not necessarily matter but brand does, mm. or? As you, uh, or as perhaps as we're learning right now, still the city that uh, goes by the old rules, and that would be uh, Eric Adams. But I was also wondering where in all of those New Yorks is uh, Trump's New York? Um, you know, I mean, I think it's if you sort of if you extend sort of New York to beyond the five boroughs and include, you know. It's suburbs, uh, which is makes us sort of, you know, includes New Jersey and Long Island and parts of, you know, the northern New York suburbs, maybe Pennsylvania. And now you're getting from a city of like eight and a half million to a kind of region of 20 million uh, people. Um, you know, I think that Trump does does sort of OK there um, um, uh, in, in those kind of, um, you know, non-college, lower income, white communities. Um, although, you know, Trump did, he did a lot better among communities of color in, in 2020, among black and, uh, and Latino voters in particular um, in the Bronx. You know, I think that um, in a way, I mean, you know, Trump is, is, is sort of an avatar of a kind of New York that doesn't really exist much anymore. Um, I mean, he was very much a, you know, New Yorker, King of New York kind of thing in, in the 1980s. Um, but, you know, he then sort of became this reality TV star and, and New York was just the kind of stage set for him. 
Um, and he was not ever thought of here uh, as a very serious person or certainly as a serious um, real estate developer. I mean, there's a lot of like very prominent and powerful real estate developer and, you know, real estate families in New York, and they were never really, really one of those. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, it's still sort of, there's still a sort of lingering Trump, you know, part of New York, but, but I think it's, it's not much. Uh, would you, uh, would you rather be a mayor of New York or, a, or the governor of the New York state? <laughs> Which job is worse? Um, well, uh, I would never rather be neither, um, because they both seem like a lot of, a lot of, a lot of trouble and strife for, for someone like me. Um, I mean, you know, it's funny, it's a funny, uh, dynamic because the, in, a, in a many ways, the, the mayor of New York is much like better known than the governor of New York state, much better known nationally, much better known in New York, much more on the ground. Um, and, and much more of a sort of often of like a symbol of an era of New York. I mean, I think a lot of people will sort of trace their time to, you know, Giuliani's New York or de Blasio's New York or, you know, pick, pick, pick your choice kind of thing. Um, and, I, and that's not the case for the governor. But what makes it complicated is, is, is all that being said, the, um, you know, the city is a ward of the state, right? It, 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 the state is more powerful than the, than the city. Um, and so the city can't really do very much without the state's approval. Um, and it just, it kind of creates, it always creates this complicated and, and friction-filled dynamic. Hmm. So Eric Adams, uh, you also covered him for quite a while now. And I was wondering, um, again, are you surprised with the turn of events or did he surprise you, uh, you know, uh, when you were uh, uh, writing about about him more and getting to know him better? And now when you, when we see him as a likely next uh mayor of new york i mean i don't know i mean i wasn't i didn't think that his actual victory was very surprising um you know he was always uh, i mean in many ways i think he was always a sort of next mayor of 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 new york and i mean i think that he um i think he won i mean he won kind of barely um in a funny way um over like fairly weak competition. Um, uh, I think one of his closest competitors, Scott Stringer, was sort of felled by his own sexual harassment scandal. Um, Andrew Yang, another close competitor, sort of just totally faded towards the, the end of the race. And his closest competitor ended up being two women, um, Catherine Garcia, who was a, a former sanitation commissioner, and Maya Wiley, who was a, a sort of pundit on um, MSNBC, neither of whom were, um, neither of them had ever run for office before, and neither of them were particularly compelling candidates. Um, but he, but he, bar- he, he, he barely won. And, and, you know, in these, in this sort of like very fraught urban environment, and, and, and in a, you know, in a place where representation really matters, you know, I think Eric Adams was able to really consolidate the, the voters, working class communities of color uh, into his base, and they voted for him en masse. Um, 
And that got him about, you know, 32% or so of the vote uh, in the first round of balloting. And that was, that was enough to win. Um, yeah. Uh, um, okay. Um, <laughs> just, uh, switching the subject, um, uh, the book, your fantastic mm-hmm. book, uh, AOC generation. Uh, see, I'm a late millennial, uh, mm-hmm. or an early millennial, I think I should say. No, yeah. An early millennial. I was wondering, are, do you, uh, do you, do you count or do you I'm not. No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm, I'm too old. I'm like, I, I passed out of that. I can't, not by much, not by much, but I really can't, I can't fake it. Okay. So could you tell us a bit about uh, then how, in your opinion, uh, millennials uh, perceive politics, how they, you know, interact with politics and how they create politics? How is it like different uh, from from your generation, from previous generations? Yeah, I mean, I think that there was the, 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 the polling that was done, you know, sort of in the mid 2010s showed that this rising generation um, was as, you know, far to the left as really any that had come before it um, and very committed to sort of certain causes among them, um, uh, among the environment, among them, um, you know, racial equality, gender equality, sexual orientation equality, uh, and, and, and things like that. And it was also in many ways kind of feeling cut out of the, um, uh, of the, of the sort of new economy that had been built in the 21st century, um, saddled with college debt, uh, unable to, uh, you know, um, afford a, a home, uh, unable to afford decent medical care, uh, in, in some instances. And so, yeah, I mean, really, you know, and, and finding, I think that the political system had really sort of failed them and were looking for alternatives. Mm-hmm. And did you have some material first? You had some interesting interview first and you decided um, I will write a book or you had an idea first and you started to report for it. How the book was born? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I, um, so I interviewed uh, Ocasio-Cortez uh, when she was running for um, office. I, I, um, I live in her district. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I just, I was actually... <laughs> It's kind of funny. I was doing a big sort of feature on the person she was running against, who was a guy named Joe Crowley, who was a longtime member of Congress, widely thought to be the next Speaker of the House um, uh, once Nancy Pelosi retired. And he was from my district. I was going to do a big story on him. Uh, And then, um, you know, she sort of shocked the world by um, upsetting him and ending his political career. And she was, no one ever heard of her. I mean, she was like a 28 year old bartender with almost no money. Um, and, um, and she, and she won her election and she was immediately thought to be a superstar. Um, you know, she was on the late night shows and everybody, you know, she was on cable TV and she really seemed to become this sort of symbol of a new generation rising into political power. And, you know, some people cheered that and other people feared that, feared that, right? I mean, you know, if you were afraid of what this new rising, super left, super diverse, 
you know, overwhelmingly female, very politically engaged generation meant here it was. It was in Andrew Ocasio-Cortez. And so she got, she got all this attention. Um, and, you know, and then it was as actually like a sort of neighbor of mine was sort of convinced me that, oh, oh you should definitely do a book on her. You should do a book on her. Um, and, uh, and, and so I did. Um, and they, you know, they did not participate in the book at all. Um, they're not really, um, she was such a superstar. They practically like hung up on me when I, when I, well, they did hang up on me when I reached out to, um, uh, talk about, you know, doing a book. Um, so I just did it without her, um, and just sort of called everyone I could ever find who knew her and then sort of expanded the lens outward to sort of talk about, you know, how someone like this kind of came in, um, to power. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, th- in the book, you, uh, talk about that a lot of people react to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as, oh my God, she will be a new next president at some point. Um, uh, 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 do you think that she has a big future in New York politics, for example? Do you think it's possible she will be not only a, a you know, U.S. president, but maybe a, a mayor of New York or a, or a governor? Uh, do you still think that she has this uh, energy and charisma? I don't really know that, that you know, I, I mean, it's funny when you, you know, books like have such a long lead time and politics mm-hmm. move so quickly. Um, you know, all the stuff I was just describing to you was like 2018 and it's now 2021. Um, and so, I mean, I do think that there, you could like, if you had asked me the in 2019 or 2020, I mean, yeah, it really seemed like she was like, she would be the president like in four years, like in 2024, she would have just turned mm-hmm. 35. Um, and in part because she just, she, she's so dynamic and so charismatic and everyone seems to hang on, you know, every word she says. And when you sort of think of how well, you know, Bernie Sanders did in 2016, uh, against Hillary Clinton getting like almost 50% of the vote, like she could do better than that. And she could be the Democratic nominee, um, you know, if she just sort of got more Latino voters, for example, she, you know, Bernie would have won easily. Um, I, I think, um, I think that that's kind of, um, less seemingly true now. Um, I think that the sort of mood in the democratic party is a little bit tiring of her, um, especially, you know, the Joe Biden one, and she's sort of more on the sidelines protesting kind of thing. Um, and you know, it's, she has not either to credit or, or detriment, you know, she has not done anything that would make you think she is sort of maneuvering to be a national political figure. Um, she hasn't like, I think a lot of her views are like kind of unpopular <laughs> writ large, and she has not done anything to kind of, um, you know, temper the, the, those views. Wow. Well, that's really interesting. I guess we will see. Uh, And finally, let's talk a bit about the writing itself. Uh, what is it to you? Have you always planned to be a writer or is it more content that is interesting to you? Is it more, uh, we already know that you're interested in politics and in uh, also in theater, in, in arts. Um, where is writing and all that? Oh, I mean, writing is like the main thing, I, I think. And it's, and it's really kind of trying to like, I think the reason I, I sort of don't stick to one 
beat, so to speak, is it's really just trying to find, um, uh, it's really just, it's trying to find sort of subjects that are interesting and ideas that are compelling and um, people that make for sort of good stories um, uh, for me. And so, you know, the sort of subject matter matters kind of a lot, a lot, a lot less, frankly. Um, do you have favorite uh, long form writers that you particularly enjoy? Uh, I'm sorry, you can just you can check again, you cut out for one second. So sorry. Uh, do you have long form writers, magazine writers that you yourself follow and particularly enjoy? Oh, sure. I mean, um, yeah, gosh, uh, so many, um, it would be, it would be really, um, hard to, hard to even, uh, know where to begin. Um, I, you know, I think someone who I think is really terrific these days is Alec McGillis, uh, who just wrote a book about kind of Amazon and its sort of distribution network and is a real, uh, just a real sort of reporter's reporter and not someone, um, who gets a lot of attention. Um, you know, I think so many of my colleagues at, at um, New York Magazine are just absolutely uh, terrific. You know, Andrew Rice, uh, Olivia Nizzi, um, you know, I think uh, Jen Senior, who's now at The Atlantic, uh, is really um, terrific. Um, you know, Ryan Lizza, who's now at, at Politico, Michael Cruz at Politico. Um, I just think that there's a, a lot of uh, really very talented, talented people out there. Thank you so much. Uh... Thank you, David, for your time. Uh, and uh, yes, uh, today we were talking uh, with David uh, Friedlander, who covers New York politics for New York Mag, and who also uh, wrote uh, a book released in March of this year titled The AOC Generation, How Millennials Are Seizing Power and Rewriting the Rules of American Politics. David, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it.